The property always feared her comrades' eyes, the eyes that never winked, that cannot accept becoming, cannot advise becoming. The method cannot be extracted, becoming the enemy. Criticism is the speaker's quick step, the dirty typist. Define becoming. listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Hello, my name is Jennifer Williams. I'm the program manager at the Scottish Poetry Library and I am here in the library today in the space with the poet Sophie Collins. Sophie is co-editor of the most wonderful online quarterly Tender, which you should definitely have a look at and is editor of the translation anthology Currently an Emotion, which is coming out, came it- out. Coming out, coming out, summer, coming out, this summer uh, with Test Centre. She received an Eric Gregory Award in 2014, and her first collection will be published by Penguin in 2017, and we can't wait for that. Uh, Sophie, you just moved to Edinburgh end of last year, and I'm so delighted when you came, (laughs) and it's wonderful to start getting to know your work, and uh, exciting to see a lot of what you're doing, especially with women's writing and with translation, but today we're here to focus especially on your own poetry. So it would be wonderful if we could start out by hearing one of your poems and then we'll talk some more. Yeah. Healers. I encountered a scaffold outside the Holy Trinity Church in Vladimir, Russia. At first I didn't notice her, slumped against the side of the church. She was pretty small for a scaffold, pretty unassuming. Her safety mesh was torn in places and some bleached all over and threatened to dislodge due to a forceful wind that was typical of the season. She was shaking. She was fundamentally insecure. She told me that good foundations are essential and that the men who had put her together hadn't taken advantage of the right opportunities. Now, each day, someone came by, called her unsafe and also a liability and then left failing to initiate the dismantling process that, yes, would have been painful and slow, but kinder. International visitors to the church blamed her for the mess of tools and rags on the grounds and for the fact that they could no longer see the church's celebrated mural depicting St. Artemy of Vercola, unusually pious, highly venerated child saint killed by lightning. His dead body radiated light, never showed signs of decay, and was in fact said to have affected multiple miracles of healing. I said comforting things to the scaffold, but she only seemed to lean more heavily against the side of the church. We are rarely independent structures, she said, before she dropped a bolt pin, which released a long section of tube, which released another bolt pin, which released several wooden boards, which scraped another tube, and made an unbearable sound. So I feel like this is the sort of question one should never ask after a poem oh, like that, but I really want to know, like, did this really happen? I mean, not that the scaffolding spoke to you, but were you were you in Russia? No, I've, I've never been to Russia. All, all the fictional It account. is. I actually, this is a really mysterious poem, even to me. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of time just looking up information about stuff on the internet 
<laughs> I, I think more than, many people. Yeah, do. I think perhaps more than the, on more mundane things than the average person might. I spend a lot of time on Wikipedia, and I was very hungover on the morning that I wrote this, which I should not admit to, but I was. And I was, for some reason, I'd landed on the Wiki, Wikipedia page for scaffolding. And don't ask. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, and there was this uh, photograph on the Wikipedia database that was, you know, embedded in the page, and it was of that church, the Holy Trinity Church in Vladimir, Russia, and, uh, yeah, I had the scaffolding sort of peeping out the side. It wasn't very apparent. And then, you know, quite suddenly the whole thing ha- happened. There was very little editing with that poem, in fact. It, you know, it came out fully formed. Mm. It was, you know, one of those strange moments with poems where that happens. Like, it feels like it's been sitting there. Except how could it have been because its origins on that page are so strange? That's, that's the good thing about this part. I'm not sick of reading it because it's, it's not something that I laboured over. Yes, yes. Um, but it's, I don't know, I think what's, I'm trying to think of what struck me about it so much. At first, I think it's that personification of the scaffolding mm-hmm. that really I just thought was remarkable. And you feel, I think it's almost your empathy for her yes. that really comes across. Yes. And that sort of tenderness. Uh, for for a structure for, yeah. for something that is uh, you know by the look of it a, a metal kind of structure we see attached to buildings all the time yeah but uh, but to suddenly have it given voice and and I think especially given that gender is mm. is very there's something very potent there you know if anything was sitting inside me sort of like brewing and and waiting to come out and you know to come out in that way it was you know probably to do more with the gender dynamics that become kind of explicit throughout the poem although that was not something that I was necessarily conscious of at the time of writing and I think that happens you know frequently with poems you've definitely written in you know some quite explicit um, messages there but it takes other people to flag them up so I think the first time the the gender of, of the scaffold really you know came up was after I'd done a reading in Brussels of this poem and there was a QA and a afterwards and a female audience member, you know, asked me, you know, about the gender of it. And at first, like, the response was almost indignance. It's like, well, you know, if it was a he, there'd be no discussion around that. Um, you know, because there's a feminine pronoun, it's, it certainly stands out to people. And for a while I thought, you know, there wasn't anything I was trying to infer onto the scaffold by calling her a woman. But, you know, I think I admit to myself now that that's not true and that this this poem was, you know, not the beginning of, like, you know, my interest in feminism. Like, that certainly started before that. Um, but I think it, you know, it marks, you know, a lot of psychic developments that were happening around that time. So, yeah, it's interesting to view this as a kind of opening of that and you know I've said in other interviews that you know although it wasn't yeah a conscious effort uh, to discuss gender relations in the poem I think other work after that certainly does that in a more conscious sense. It's funny I, I think for me another interesting I mean before I say anything about it I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the title and that idea of healer um, and healing in the poem mm. did that does 
Is that part of the mystery of it for you, or was that purposeful? It's, that's, the title might be one of the most mysterious things. I remember actually writing this poem out for the first time, and I think it initially it ended on the word healing. That was where it stopped. Oh. And I had to give it a title. I called it Healers. Um, then I, sh you know, I showed it to someone, and they felt like it wasn't quite finished. Then the end came. Um, yeah, I think I think you know the title obviously references a lot of what is going on in the poem. But again, it was quite a spontaneous mm. effort on my part because it made me think of. Again, I started thinking about okay, what is um, you know, a scaffold is, like part of what's needed to heal a yeah, building. Like, you need yeah. to build that structure to, to build and then repair a building. And if you're thinking about women and that role of women, mm -hmm. that often women, I think, are, um, or can be seen to have been throughout history in this role where they're, they're supporting, they're, they're in that kind of nurturing and healing role and they're, they're supporting a family unit in some way um, or dare I say it, a man in some way, yeah. well... And there's also the whole thing of like the church mm. and the secular structure of the yeah. scaffold and those things being kind of divorced in that way as yeah. well. Um, but I think what's so moving about it is that, that her, her collapsing mm. um, and, and is that... I don't know, there's something about that, I think the way the story of the child saint, and I think that almost feels very... Yeah, as if it's representing a total other power structure, like yeah. the masculine That's kind of church patriarchal world. Yeah, I mean, this hasn't really occurred to me before, but hearing mm. you talk about it and the child saint <laughs> and the kind of unseemly, you know, obstructive structure of the mm. scaffold that is female and that is, you know, trying to hold things up, it makes me think, in fact, about uh, emotional mm. and uh, domestic labour. And, you know, uh, women sort of quietly carrying out those roles, you know, perhaps getting, you know, uh, grief for getting in the way when trying to carry out those roles. Um, yeah, that feels like another interesting yeah. straight that's running through there. Yeah. It's, it's very, um, I don't know, I think that, again, that kind of sound at the end, which is almost made, um, it's... I I really love it because it's almost the kind of thing that is incidental. It's something almost like the relating in some way to the tree in the forest that mm -hmm. idea. Like, I mean, it's interesting actually. Even especially thinking of you not having been there in some square in Russia looking at yeah. this, but finding this image on the internet, and you you had that moment of um, empathy, discovery, and empathy, yeah. and thinking about this, and. And thinking about that whole idea of so many people or women in the world who, you know, have maybe done quite a lot but haven't been heard or recognized for that work, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and that kind of the, the unheard cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the tree falls and no one's there to hear it. Does anyone hear it? Yeah, I think, yeah, there's definitely, mm -hmm. you know, running through the whole thing is that frustration of an unheard mm -hmm. voice. Um, but I have to say, you know, a lot of the the things, the title, you know, the way it kind of uh, builds at the end and comes to that conclusion of the unbearable sound, like a lot of that at the time of writing just felt more like the, uh, almost like the logical next move in the writing mm -hmm. of the poem for me at the time. It's like, well, where do I go now? 
oh, well, this works, and, you know, this is a good ending. And then uh, afterwards, a lot more of the significance yeah. comes to you and to other people and to you through other people. And do you, I mean, how, I mean, I, I, um, I recognise that. I yeah. Like, and I have heard other writers talk about that, but I, I always think it's, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, can you, it must be, I mean, I often think it has something to do with some interaction between our what feels like our conscious and our subconscious. Yeah, I'm a big mind. believer in that. Yeah. That there are things, you've been sort of talk, talking about that, I think that, you know, there are things working away Honestly, <laughs> I, don't know, I think about this all the time. I feel like there's so much brewing mm -hmm. in the back room. <laughs> you know, that sometimes something will be brought forward that, you know, obviously my mind has been working on for a while, although I've not been conscious of it. And I feel like more, you know, as I get older and I feel more conscious of that relationship between kind of the, the conscious and the unconscious, I, I, you know, I like to use it in a way. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll have a, a problem in a poem or an essay or whatever, and I feel like I can sort of register it in my brain, I, knowing that I'll leave it with the unconscious for a couple <laughs> of days and then I'll come back to it and probably, or, you know, it will come back to me and I'll be... Some sort of solution presented there, and it won't be the expected one. And it's, I feel like there's, yeah, there's a lot of intru intuition and, and a lot of feeling of, of putting trust in that, mm -hmm. um, and definitely in the context of the poem as well. I think it's so important, and I, I hope, you know, I often hope writers can find a way to allow themselves yeah. that because I think when people do describe that sense of and I think for most poets, it, it feels like the most special poems, the ones totally. that almost just fall totally. out. Yeah. But it's easy to think it's just, you know, been divine inspiration. Yeah. But yeah. actually, I think it's worth giving, you know, I think often the subconscious or the unconscious doesn't, it's hard to remember that that is us, mm. um, even if it's a shared yeah. kind of... And you get impatient, you can't sit around and just wait <laughs> for like your unconscious to come up with brilliant lines. like. We have deadlines to meet. We have contracts. You know, that's Come that's on, the thing about us. yeah. Um, but I'm you know I get frustrated. I think with other people's writing when there's a sense that it's all effort and kind of no unconscious gliding. I feel like you can see that in the page, um, and it feels very dry to me. Yeah, and I think the two need to inform each other. Do you think there's a danger of uh, the other side of that, like unedited, unconscious writing, like just some that, that you, some um, people or some poems are too too much in that? Can you be too much in the realm of the unconscious? I don't think you can be too. much. I think you know there's got to be an editing mm. process, you know, to whether you know to what extent that goes. Um, I feel like the, uh, the other way is more problematic yeah, for yeah. me, but I feel like yeah. a balance between the two. Yeah. But again, that sounds starts to sound very dry when yeah. you talk about you know splitting it 50-50 or 70-30 mm -hmm. or whatever. You can't really quantify no. those things, I feel. No. And you can, you know, there are ways in which you can let, uh, like machines or, you know, uh, other texts do some of that Kind of unconscious work for you, like Google some translate. Yeah, well, it what you know, it does what like it produces mm. some interesting stuff. Like it sounds so trite, mm. and I've stopped you know mentioning it in introductions of poems mm. when I've used that method of 
putting text back and forth through Google Translate, but the, you know, the fact is like, I, I still use it. Yeah. I just don't really draw much attention to it. And I know that there are other writers who do do that. You did a reading here in Edinburgh recently that was brilliant at the Sutton Gallery, oh, um, at Colin Hurst Gallery, and, and the American poet Noir Al-Sadir mm -hmm. was also reading, who we've done some work with around this idea of, she does a lot of writing with the, from the unconscious, she wakes yeah. herself up in the she's middle an of the night and writes, and yeah. she's an analyst, and so on and so forth. So any of those methods where, whether it be writing from dreams or free writing yeah. or using these kind of uh, more mechanical devices to help, I think they're all really excellent ways of yeah. helping uh, access those spaces. So, so when yeah, if we're talking about like a pure unconscious poetry, mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that she was reading, that Noir was reading, was that was what it was, you know? Mm -hmm. The thing where she was talking about uh, how she would set her alarm, alarm for, is it 3.15 or 3 a.m. <laughs> or something every morning, wake up, write down the first thing that came to mm -hmm. her. And then she has that sit, that, that series of those, yeah. and they're all very short and clipped. And they work cumulatively, don't they? Yeah. You sort of have to hear a few of them to get mm -hmm. a feeling about how they're working. Let's hear another one of your poems. Okay, Nalita. Have we accepted that we cannot turn, cannot turn, cannot turn the secret hidden method of the audience? The test speaker quick steps in public and gives the audience his dirty tips. The problems in the audience sector can be defined as enclosed in a dresser, in a field, with a vision of modernism. Federal Garcia Lorca receives the audience in a public garden, a zoological garden of public choice. The audience have knowledge of the public body's combustion bill and the bookshelf personality of a toilet. A violent audience that threatens the public service in advance with the can-can. The public is forever in fear. Public sectors surround the mind and face. Blinking in the public section can never be accepted. Federico Garcia Lorca is used to that. What a citizen. Public investigation is quick and shall decipher at the public's interest. The public park, the public zoo, a public marks from private folds. The ministry offers the public milk and honey. Public enemies review the public in public, prompt and dingy creatures with prevalent interests in alternative public depiction. The public face of modernism was a dividing folder, a common folder that came into the public via Federico Garcia Lorca. The public model of science, fervent in public organ rations, was always prevalent and hot. Its problem in the public sector can be defined as room for surrender. The property always feared her comrades' eyes, the eyes that never winked, that cannot accept becoming, cannot advise becoming. The method cannot be extracted, becoming the enemy. Criticism is the speaker's quick step, the dirty typist. Define becoming. The science of public understanding of private interest. Picture philosophy and her problems. An embraceable region becoming the commons of the face. The audience wants what the audience gets. A garden comes into use. Some follow the montage. Public choice. A model worth the arts subjects. Worth, worth the science, burning locations, character the private. 
so again, I was wondering about the title, which which I did do my duty and looked up. And as I thought, it is a neighborhood in New York City mm -hmm. and is short for north of Little Italy. And yeah, does that, did, did that, what came first, the poem or the title? I think the poem, gosh, this is quite old now. <laughs> uh, but again, I still like it because mm. it, it uses found text. Um, so this was actually, uh, the way the poem came about was it was commissioned um, for a series in London uh, oh. where poets are paired up and they're given um, kind of opposing ideas or opposing terms to work with, like not exact opposites. But I was given uh, public and the par my partner who I was working with was given private. Okay. And we had to write a poem, you know, corresponding with that, not necessarily on the theme of that, but in some way corresponding with it. So I, with public, I kind of like, I guess, crowdsourced the poem, <laughs> um, is now how I'm thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I googled the search term public and, um, you know, I sort of scraped through the results for something vaguely interesting and I found this text and then passed the text through various online translation systems. Okay. Um, and... So this is actually four variations on the same text, no. which is why like the recurring, you know, there are the names that recur in various things. I mean, they've all been heavily edited by me, so there are some elements that are in some of the texts that aren't in the others, um, you know, like Milk and Honey, for example. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's you know, four recycled versions of the same text, which mm. maybe they won't come across in the recording because I've... I don't number them anymore, mm -hmm. um, and they're just separated on the page with these sort of section symbols. That was the um, origins, and then I think I went to the same page that I found the text on to find the title, but the title worked because the text, of, as I've worked with it and as I've edited it, kind of carves out this, I don't want to say dystopian, but there's some kind of strange city societal space going on in it um and at least it sounded like a like a location mm. um and it is a location yeah. and i also like you know the sort of subversion of lolita like yeah. people who've never heard of nolita uh before you know they look at it and think that it's like somehow a play on that which yeah. i guess you know some of the text in the poem would support um and it's nice to think that there are different readings that are going on there. Yeah. Um, um, I'm proud of myself because I wrote down as you did. my notes, public stroke private. I just realised <laughs> I was looking at that as I was talking to you, but it didn't register. I think I thought I wrote it. So Jeez. it's interesting that that really strongly comes through. Right. And I think that, I mean, that felt to me, not knowing the processes that it had been generated from. Yeah. I mean, you did feel a real, I mean, I got a real sense that it was a kind of it was engaging with this idea somehow of public versus private yeah. space or yeah. how we define or generate those spaces. Yeah. And I felt there's that wonderful um, slippage going on between the different sections of you can feel that the words are like, it's echo, it feels, it's different from an echo because it's, mm. it's like more like a slide from one word to another, but even, yeah. you know, that you had Federal Garcia Lorca and yeah. Federico Garcia Lorca, yeah, yeah. and you're thinking, oh, 
oh, what's happened? You know, yeah. how, how has that changed? Have you yeah. That? So, I mean, I love that that's coming from those processes, but also as a reader, especially when you don't know that, it opens up all these pathways for thought and inquiry about the meaning of words and why those why those slippages are happening. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting to think about, you know, like obviously in this, even though it's essentially found text um, and it's been created, you know, uh, through translation generators, like there are lots of uh, seemingly, you know, literary references, yes. like quite heavily laden through there actually. And in a way, you know, they're kind of as meaningful as, you know, the very carefully orchestrated one that, you know, a very uh, literary writer might sew into their poems, you know, as far as a reader is concerned. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of interesting. Because again, with Lorca, I kept thinking, oh, you know, I was looking up Lorca and I was thinking about Lorca's yeah. story and yeah. the assassination and all the things he brought to kind of... Um, you know, in his experimentalism mm -hmm. and poetry, that he'd opened up all these interesting spaces yeah. and then been killed for it. So it's really, you know, it, it really engages with all yeah. these interesting it, yeah. kind of areas. <laughs> I, I also must the... say that um, a violent audience that threatens the public service in advance <laughs> with the can can must be one of my favorite lines. Yeah, right. That's so, I, guess, <laughs> I just love the idea of an audience sort of. Do, 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 do. I like bookshelf personality of a toilet. Yes, also fantastic. But um, but when I was working with the text, you know, this was literally, I f I found this very poor online translation generator <laughs> that I don't really want to share, but I use it a lot for stuff. And so when this comes out, it's it's completely nonsensical, like even more nonsensical than it is in in this state, in the state of the poem. Um, so it's just a load of words and lots of symbols and, you know, I go through that and I thread it together and I add in a lot of my own words. So it's not pure found text, you know, in a like hardcore conceptualist sense. Um, but I think that's why the public private, uh, you know, access, you know, comes through so strongly because obviously in, in editing, you know, rather than writing, that was, you know, on the brain. Yeah. And it's not something that I, you know, very deliberately during the editing process tried to you know interlace through it but you know that's seems to be how the editing of those kinds of poems works i think there's something i mean for i wonder if some people when they think about working with found text feel that it could be quite um where do they get to make their mark or mm. you know that it's off i think in a in that really pure found text kind of way, your mark really as a poet is in the editing. Yeah. But I I'm very I think it's very exciting this kind of way of working where it's again it's um it's almost like a just a starting point. It's a bit yeah. of the first bit of material yeah. you start to work with, but then yeah. you, the poet, go in and really rearrange things. Yeah, and yeah. add your own and add a lot of stuff. Text I think I'm like a big advocate for like I don't know why I have a natural aversion to this word, but hybrid texts, mm. you know, like uh, I appreciate, you know, the thinking of conceptualism and I appreciate lyric poetry as well. And I'm really most interested in a kind of, you know, space in between those mm. uh, where they benefit from each other. Mm. 
and this is something that you know other poets have explored too there's the i think she's canadian Sina Quarius. Mm. i'm pronouncing that completely wrong <laughs> but she has this manifesto on the poetry foundation website okay. uh called the lyric conceptualist or lyric conceptualism manifesto mm. it's a manifesto in progress it says um and she sort of advocates for the same thing you know mm. a poetry that that operates between the two yeah. and, and, and takes from both and, and is, you know, the more interesting for it. Yeah, I mean, that feels very, uh, I mean, it, it feels very of our time yeah. somehow in the right kind of way uh, that, you know, I think poets, for instance, working with all that the internet gives us is, you know, there's this vast amount of knowledge mm. and text and image that is suddenly there for the taking but mm. how do we how do we work with that in a way where we can not be overwhelmed by it yeah. or we can bring our own you know make use of it but also bring our own kind of voice back to that which i think again in, in both these poems in different ways like yeah examples. totally i mean i love found text i find mm. that you know endlessly interesting and i often my favorite poet poems of you know poets i know <laughs> are like found things because mm. i don't know i guess i'm interested in the materiality of text as well, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like poem as art object almost. But the other thing that I think is, you know, complete, you know, you completely can't ignore is the importance of subjective expression and subjective experience. Um, I think to ignore that or to denigrate that in any way is really dangerous, um, you know, and speaks to a lot of discussions that we're having around so-called identity politics. Um, so yeah, I like. I like a space between the two. Um, Okay, give us another poem. A.S. And what was it Anna Sophia couldn't say? That all had started with Arlo, when she had started up with Arlo, who had been nice enough, but whose presence had turned her into herself. And so first the faces, then mainly the eyes, but in the end, all of it, really. And what was it she couldn't say she was after? To smash to pieces the earthenware jug on the stovetop? The sound of a veil tearing? Both were nice ideas, but she couldn't stick with them. She walked around a bit and started to blurt things out. She told old men just how much they smelled, that their breath smelled and more, and this got her into some real trouble. A white old man, pale lizard face, small teeth, paper neck, hat the colour of yellow dog shit. He came at her in an alleyway with the red tie just as bad, and, quick as she needed to be, A.S. had pulled out a razor knife. Could have been Arlo's, could have been anyone's, and flicked it at his papery neck. She would tell them she had been where she had always intended to be that day in September 2013, the Mushrooms and Health Summit, Washington, D.C. And if it didn't get her off, it wouldn't. It didn't matter. Powerful, she can cook. <laughs> I love that last line and this sense of... Um power and cooking being equated it's really great it's kind yeah. of um i think again in terms of i think often well it's funny isn't it because i think you know with women cooking is often seen as the kind of thing oh they do when they're looking out after the house but yeah, it's right. it's like um you know even if they're very good at it it's part of that whole domestic womanly kind of slightly impoverished existence sort of things mm-hmm. uh whereas if men can cook it's like they're a celebrity chef and they're making lots of money exactly. from it and blah blah blah. But yeah. I, I love I don't know, it's just such a simple and very strong phrase, powerful she can Yeah. Think. I mean that was in fact the first thing of the poem that I wrote. Yeah. I was like, 
I don't know where that's this is another one of the unconscious I was like that I don't know where that's come from but that has to be the final yeah. line Great. and yeah I think a lot of what you just mentioned plays into that mm-hmm. um, and also I guess like a general uh, interest in witchiness mm-hmm. and in witch power <laughs> yeah yeah I mean um, she's a badass really yeah I love her and this was like I say another instance of trusting my unconscious a lot because that came to me and then I sat down and I wrote the rest pretty much straight out with fairly minimal editing. Are there any more about her or is this so... This is the only one at the moment. She seems like such a strong character. You almost feel like there could be a series of AES pieces. The thing I worry about with series, especially with like a poem character, is sometimes it can feel like you know, when you're on like a, a poetry MA or a poetry program or something, and you've got <laughs> deadlines to meet. So everything you write that seems productive, you end up having to make it into a sequence or a series because you need a certain amount of pages to submit. Yeah. That's my worry with that. And I yeah. kind of feel like maybe it's more effective to just like, you know, pow, like yeah. dip in and out, and that's yeah. that's all you're getting, sort of thing. Um, but she might everyone can write their own AS poems. Yeah, I mean, she might. She sort of. She kind of comes back in other guises, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, is there a woman, a, a, a kind of iconic woman, who is present in, in that she in your poems? Or are they many different people? Or women I think or characters? they're many different people. I mean, they're also different, you know, and women are also different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think recently, you know, I've been interested in writing, like, the sort of... Uh, you know, the anti-hero or the opposite of what we expect to hear about from women, you know, hence the kind of, uh, you know, almost like aggressive uh, actions of AS in this poem. And kind of also, like, even calling her AS, you don't tend to, I feel like, often don't reduce women's names to, like, their initials or something like that. It also feels like almost like a male... Hallmark yeah, or something. Very Kafka or yeah, something. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, that feels, like, powerful as well. So, yeah, I'm interested in, I guess, subverting our expectations of uh, female protagonists. And, you know, uh, I've, I've, again, I've spoken about this in interviews before with this poem. It just felt really fun to be disrespectful <laughs> to the old, you know, quote-unquote white old man. Um, because I feel like... <laughs> You know, they run the spaces that the poem has begun to infiltrate, and, and that feels kind of fun and empowering for mm-hmm. me to bring that into those spaces. You just. Yeah, slip just... throat. <laughs> just kill them right off? Kill them all off, <laughs> off with their heads. That papery neck is horrible. Yeah, Ugh. see it, right? Lizards. Dangling. Lizard neck. Turkey neck. <laughs> It's really, I mean, it's, just, it's a topic I'm also really interested in, this idea of um, heroism and the concept of the female gender, because, you know, the word hero, I think, when in our culture, when we use it, is so often attributed to a man. Or, mm-hmm. But actually, in, in terms of the, the word actually is non-gendered, it can apply to, yeah. you can use the word hero for a woman, and you yeah. don't have to use heroin. Yeah. And, and even that fact that we have this extra other word... Like actress. Yeah, it's kind of like you don't need it. The the word yeah. itself is enough already, and yeah. um, and I think you know that all those ideas about is a woman allowed? You know, if if you heard about a man hero who 
you know, chopped off a bunch of people's heads mm. to save his country, right. you'd be like, oh, yay! Yeah. You know? But if you heard about a woman who chopped off a bunch of people's mm. heads to save her country, you'd be like, yeah. I mean, it's, I feel like it's it's less celebrated in our culture yeah. that vision of yeah, a, right. a, a the strong context of a poem, woman. like a kind of warrior. Uh, you know, male narrator, like, no one bats an eye. It's mm-hmm. kind of like the church thing. I guess, like, a lot of the things that I'm working on at the moment are just exploring female narrative, which a lot of the time comes across as subversive or, you know, progressive in some way, simply because that's, like, untracked terrain. Yeah. Like, I'm not actually doing anything, you know, wildly new in that sense, but, it, you know, it feels that way because it's ground not trodden. Yeah, it's just... Uh, it's just those those oppressions for so long have just somehow quieted those voices. Yeah, so I think often when you start to explore or express those things, you know, we're ungrateful and lucky that we live in a time when we can yeah. do that and do it on a more visible platform. Yeah. Um, but but it's wild how I mean just to write a very short uh, narrative about. A woman who just yeah slices a guy's throat feels kind of yeah whoa yeah, but yeah. actually you know it's I mean there's how many narratives are there that existed in literature about men killing women that are so, so, so many so many. many and I think now in this climate to for you know a modern you know a contemporary poet to read something like that it's now you know a male poet to read that poem would you know cause a stir. The thing about crime writing, for yeah. instance, it yeah. wouldn't be the least, no, not at all. you know, not at all. unusual to come across that and that, yeah. realm, would it? And yet, it's still actually, if you think about it through this lens, it's mm. not very nice, <laughs> or, or you know, maybe not as interesting as the other way around. Yeah, totally. Not that I'm advocating, you know. <laughs> I know it sounds like we're trying to instigate something here, but it's just it's just that whole thing about, I suppose even freedom of expression, free emotional freedom. Is mm-hmm. a woman allowed to have this yeah. really wide ranging spectrum of emotion? Uh, you know, which includes anger to the point of violence. Yeah. Or, um, which which again, I don't think I wouldn't I. I you know, I'm a Buddhist yeah. type kind of meditated person. I, I yeah, I say like, that I've never harmed anyone <laughs> either. But but it's just yeah, yeah it's totally true. It's totally true. I mean, that reading you out the other day, for example, I read the Mary Sue piece, yeah, yeah. and um, you know, it was modelled off a book that I've actually got in my bag, mm-hmm. uh, that Joanna Ross book, How to Suppress Women's Writing. And she tells an anecdote about being on a, you know, a committee that's selecting uh, creative writing manuscripts to go through, for people to go through to the creative writing programme. And one of them is, you know, describes a woman being so, so incensed with her husband that she's considering, you know, thwacking him over the head of the frying pan, but not in a slapstick way, like she's actually thinking that. And she's on the panel with two other men. The men don't believe the anger, you know? They don't yeah. believe that the woman, you know, can feel the anger. It doesn't read as credible to them. And, you know, wow. the woman isn't, doesn't go through to the programme on that basis. Like, the, the emotion was overstated, you know. But, like, the inverse, wow. like, it's something we're so used to hearing about. Yeah, yeah. That's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Do you feel now, because you talked about with the first poem, that 
it was there was a time maybe when you weren't thinking about feminism in relation to your poetry or writing, but maybe you've been in a. Um, well, I I was earlier when we were talking talking about that word transition. Mm. Like, do you feel that in your writing now that it's important to you to be a feminist or to write in a way that is associated with that way of thinking, or do you not? I feel like when I'm when I'm writing the poems, that's something that is not uh, at the forefront of my mind. And I'm not trying to like cover my ass or like protect mm-hmm. myself in any sense when I say that. You know, I'm just writing for myself and I'm enjoying mm-hmm. what I'm writing. When I'm writing critical work all the time, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking about being a feminist. Um, but I think, you know, as my consciousness has developed um, to the place where I am now, where it's, you know, it's something I think about every day, it's, you know, one of my main preoccupations, it just naturally floods into the writing a lot more. And it's not something I'm interested in battling. Like it's something I'm interested in exploring in quite an oblique way, because mm-hmm. um, I I find that personally the most interesting. Do you think? Uh, I I feel like generalizations like this are really ridiculous and probably not helpful. But I'm gonna ask this question anyway, just to see where we get to. But um, I went to Wellesley All Women's. Uh, small liberal arts college in America and then I feel like when I was studying um, literature there there was a lot of talk of kind of women's writing right, right. there's a kind of writing that was like mm. women's writing and which was probably different than some holistic overall way from men's writing I'm mm-hmm. making little annoying quotation marks with my fingers in the air <laughs> uh, and and that because of the patriarchal structures of our societies for such a long time that men's writing, whatever that is, that generalization has been valued and women's writing, whatever that is, has been not valued and uh, to the same extent. And so that maybe there's a whole kind of writing, whatever that means. I guess that for me it often is a question about forms, um, the way we put words on a page, the mm-hmm. way we construct a poem. Um, that that maybe doesn't get published or doesn't get heard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I guess I'm curious about if that seems, I mean, that, that's maybe something that was being explored in the 60s and 70s yeah. by a certain kind of feminists working in sort of feminist literary theory, but, and I haven't been studying that in a long time, so I'm probably <laughs> very out of date. But, um, but I, I guess I'm curious because you do, for instance, publish, uh, you co-edit Tender, um, and that's a women's uh, a magazine, an online publication which is edited by two women and publishes only women. Yeah, correct. Yeah, you know. So for instance, I find that really interesting. I think the work you're publishing there does feel different somehow. Not necessarily different from men's writing, but it feels like it's sort of proud of it's proud to be experimental and mm-hmm. open to very different kinds of forms and voices and. You know, does that feel important to provide kind of platform or space for writing by women and those kind of voices? Yeah, it does feel important to provide that space for writing by women. I, I as well, you know, the the phrase women's writing in that particular way, expressed in that particular way, has such a heavy connotation that I find myself generally avoiding it. I say writing by women, or I say, you know. Uh, female authored work or something like that yeah no it does feel important I think you know there's even though a lot of these things were explored in the 70s and 80s there's still 
quote unquote hot debate around whether women's writing is intrinsically different from men's writing um and to me it often is and that's you know not because necessarily our brains work differently but that's because we have different ex life experiences different experiences of, of society so i think you know uh a part of that is that you know historically literary magazines have been male-led um, and so a notion of quality that's been built out of that revolves around their own writing, their expectations of writing and their life experiences. And so an idea of quality has been built up around, you know, um, the male perspective. So now we find ourselves at a turning point where I think that people are questioning those notions of quality, but, you know, all of that is still very much in transition. And I think with, uh, you know, tender, what we're trying to show is, you know, the other side of that coin, basically, um, you know, to place emphasis on female good work that is incredibly brilliant, but maybe isn't getting the airtime because, you know, a lot of uh, institutions are still, you know, uh, led by male gatekeepers, you know, so they're perhaps not letting some of the work through that we would like to champion. Mm. And it's not, you know, it's not only male editors as well as, as women who've, you know, obviously taken on certain ideas of quality that have been inbuilt as well. Yeah. I think that's the thing is when, that it's, you know, uh, as reading a book someone had recommended me by the writer Bell Hooks, mm -hmm. um, and she, she was probably my first, like, really getting my head around the idea of, you know, really thinking about what it is for both men and women growing up in a patriarchal society, mm. and that mm. whole idea that women aren't just as responsible for maintaining those structures as men are all yeah. And so it's not like, I think that thing, what was I, I was reading, I think it was around International Women's Day, I was reading something which was really, like, um, talking about the fact that uh, feminists, you know, that's exactly why feminists need to be both male and female because yeah. it's not about saying only women are good or only women are powerless mm. or anything. It's about the way these structures affect people of all genders yeah. and, and how it's I mean, I, I don't support every woman. You know, I don't get along or agree with every woman. You don't love every woman? No, so <laughs> no I do not. The feminist said she does not like all women. Um, uh, how dare <laughs> But that said, like, I do want to say that, you know, within a patriarchal structure, although both men and women are hurt by it, men still have more to gain, you know? Yeah. And even men who, you know, acknowledge the importance of feminism, they still hold on to certain aspects of a patriarchal society because it, it does benefit them. So before we go, I'd love it if we could talk a little bit about... If you could tell us a little bit about your translation anthology that is coming out this year. And um, I'm curious actually about your collection as well, which is coming out in 2017. Is that complete Gosh. now? Does it exist? Or are you still working on it? I'm still working on the collection. Mm -hmm. I will send a first draft to my editor at Penguin this year. Um, although obviously they've seen a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, you know, I'm still working on on some of the poems and also on the structure mm -hmm. of it, because um, I guess increasingly I'm with collections. I'm interested in a collection that works self-reflexively, 
and that maybe incorporates more of a sort of distinct critical standpoint mm. rather than one that is just the pulling together of a lot of work. Ah, um, what do you mean? Tell me more about that. Um, it's, you know, I think different poets de deal with this in different ways. Um, I, you know, uh, I like not necessarily a concept collection, but that there is a sort of political or, you know, a critical thrust to the work, um, rather than it being sort of a hodgepodge of things, which is fine too. And some, you know, often the two, those two things work quite nicely together. I think one of my favorite poets at the moment is, uh, an American poet called Lucy Ives. Mm. And she, my favourite book is, is her collection, um, Orange Roses, and that incorporates um, some kind of sort of speculative uh, critical writing within the structure of the book. And, you know, rather than that feeling like an apology for the work in there or like a kind of, you know, post-grad critical commentary of the work in there, it just feels like it's speaking mm. in really nice kind of indirect ways to the other work in there okay. um, and I find that interaction between those different kinds of writing really interesting mm. and something as a reader that feels quite new and that more people are doing um, and something that I'm interested in doing too Amazing. that feels like a natural progression of where we are mm. in terms of how collections function you know and you know things like poorly ranking citizen like feel like they're in that conversation as well kind of essayistic poetry almost mm. um yeah i like that mm. um and you are so you're currently finishing up a phd in literature and translation at queen's university is that yeah that? poetry and translation. Right. poetry and translation and so the anthology the translation anthology that's coming out this year called currently an emotion is it's part of the output of your PhD research because it's both a creative and critical PhD. Yeah, is that right? yeah. Um, I mean, it's something that I would have, you know, always wanted to do in any mm -hmm. case, but only as a result of the research that I've done um, for the thesis. But yeah, it's it's the creative component of my of my PhD, which is slightly unusual, um, <laughs> and edited anthology. Tell me, tell me all about it. Gosh, where to start? It's been <laughs> such a mammoth project. Um, so it's 29 translations. Uh, the number is incidental. <laughs> um, uh, all into English um, or else into, you know, visual material. And uh, it's it's been really difficult because people seem for you to want to categorise the kinds of translations that you're interested in. And with me, the category you know, that people tend to infer on me is experimental or radical. But I think some of the work in there, you know, will actually per be perceived as, you know, relatively, uh, not conservative, but, you know, traditional. It's, you know, it's interling interlingual translations, working between different languages, rendered in, you know, a fairly, uh, again, this is a really problematic term, but quote-unquote faithful way. But the work in there... That is, that is more traditional, I feel is radical in terms of the source text, in, in terms of the work that's being translated. So anything that operates in that more traditional way comes from, you know, uh, marginalised literatures, um, you know, also called minority literatures and languages and cultures. Um, so I'm interested in radical translations being radical in terms of the channels they pass through as well. 
you know, as opposed to uh, like more radical strategies incorporating you know, mm. online chance generators and you know wacky things like that. Um, I think both are really important and powerful in terms of translation culture for different re- reasons, but ultimately because both kind of subvert a sort of Western idea of translation as like, I guess, the quintessential humanistic enterprise. You know, one that, in terms of translations into English literature, tends to come mainly from male-authored, you know, Western European texts or classical texts. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of, I've selected work that uh, kind of subverts that, really, that goes against those expectations that we have of translated poetry. And did you, are these... these any of these commissioned, or they're more like pre-existing works that you they're, gather? Yeah, they're all pre-existing. I think mm-hmm. the idea was, uh, well, the timeline is any work published after 2010 oh. or unpublished. And initially that um, that timeline was kind of random. It was just, you know, to give myself some parameters to work with. But I think actually, you know, around that time, even possibly a bit earlier, you know, with the influence of the internet, that was when I think a lot of small presses uh, started doing interesting things with translation, mm. um, you know, and producing like amazing chapbooks and, and editions of stuff um, that was going against the grain of, you know, w- what is translated into English in terms of poetry. So, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, excerpts from small press books in there and a lot of stuff that's yet unpublished. A lot of stuff that's based in the US as well as in the UK. And by both men and women? Both men and women, but I say it's hard for me to. I haven't actually thought about this. Mm-hmm. It's probably 70% women. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the source texts, are they a mix as well? They're a mix as well. Again, it's hard for me to say without looking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've. I've definitely, in my selection, I've, I've tried to place an emphasis on translations of living women, because mm-hmm. those are the things that you tend to find the least yeah. um, in translation. Yeah, I mean, looking at the figures, male and female translators, they're more or less even, but when it comes to the source material that those two demographics are translating, it's something like three to one male to female work. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, there's quite a few really interesting uh, writers in there who have only recently been translated into English and are mm-hmm. still writing. So Very exciting. Because I know these uh, conversations keep coming up um, at various festivals that I've been at and so on and so forth about translation, about uh, what you were mentioning, but, you know, authenticity when you're bringing a poem into a new language. If it, I think especially in the case of the, the question of when it's a living writer and a, a lesser-known writer, so it's their first time coming into a new mm. language and it's their kind of introduction to yeah. the new readership. Yeah. If there is any more of a responsibility, responsibility on the translator. To the source to, text. Yeah. I think but, there is. I mm. think there is. I think a lot of authors in other languages are you know really into the idea of their work being experimented with. But I think... This again, it goes back to the subjective expression thing, the subjectivity thing, and identity politics, so-called identity <laughs> politics. Um, because I think if 
you as a trans, you know, if, if me as someone who's interested in theorising translation and is interested in experimental or radical translation completely does away with the idea of being quote-unquote faithful to the source text, I think that's doing a lot of damage as well in terms of not representing those voices adequately within an Anglophone context. And that's that's something I talk about in my introduction to the mm-hmm. book, how I think, you know, quote, <laughs> we need a better word for it, but faithfulness in translation is, is still relevant to mm-hmm. me because mm-hmm. subjective expression is still relevant. And do you find, you know, I guess that, I never really thought about that before, but when you're translating a more experimental poet, is mm-hmm. there more room for experimentation in the translation? Or is it the opposite almost? Do you almost yeah. need to be more? I think that really varies depending on mm-hmm. what kind of text it is. I think people are more want to experiment if the source text suggests experimentation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, my feeling is that one doesn't necessarily lend itself more than the other. But, you know, uh, to kind of enact equivalence between the source text and the translation uh, is more difficult if there's not, uh, you know, for example, a narrative structure in place or if the words, uh, you know, in their quote-unquote original languages don't necessarily make quote-unquote sense, you know, uh, there's there's more of an idea that that the text is an experience that that's something that the translator has to read and internalise and then kind of uh, recreate in translation, mm-hmm. you know? Whereas if a poem is relatively traditional, uh, you know, that's something people feel more capable of um, reproducing in a more direct way, mm-hmm. whether or not you believe that is possible. And can you give an example of what you would call radical translation? I think that's such an interesting... Uh, yeah, I mean, oh gosh, there's so, there's so many different grades of it and so many <laughs> different spheres, like it feels weird to pick just one out. Yeah. Um, but I think probably one of the most extreme approaches in the book is by an American poet and translator called Christine Hawkey. And he's translating the Austrian expressionist George Trappel. He didn't have Austrian when he began translating. But he, you know, as well as using online translators and that kind of thing, he used, I guess, quite bodily methods, um, Mm. or or physical maybe, as in he took the source text and he took it to a shooting range, shot it with a 12-ball shotgun, (laughs) then transcribed what was left of it afterwards. He also left... Uh, the poem, the source text, you know, in a jar of water and let that kind of like stagnate over a period of time and then, you know, retrieved it and sort of (laughs) took what he could of it into into text. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, a Catalan poet called J.B. Foch, um, who was kind of a surrealist, and he links his poetry to the uh, contemporary idea of elliptical poets, so people like Matea Harvey, and when translating them, kind of tries to ingratiate them into that category, both by the way the text is structured and, you know, in terms of the, the words themselves. And I kind of, I feel like I'm interested in demystifying the translation process, because when you talk to poets who don't translate but are interested in it, you know, they either dive right in without learning much about it and say some really crass things <laughs> about 
you know, their translations and they produce quite generic work as a result of that lack of kind of research, or they feel completely intimidated by it. You know, I heard a poet describe translation, and by that I guess he meant translation and translation theory the other day, as an abyss, which felt dismissive to me. Mm. It felt like, you know, maybe you've faced criticism for the work, the translation work that you've produced, so you're kind of dismissing it, you know, saying there's, there's too much there, there's too much discussion. But I, you know, I think that's something that you've got to get involved with if you're actually interested in translation as a mode of writing, which is how I see it. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, an inherently political mode of writing, working as it does, you know, often between languages. Um, I basically think if you're a writer and you're interested in politics, you must be interested in translation. Mm. And to ignore it is just seems kind of remarkable to yeah. me. Yeah, but it's so much, isn't it, to do, I mean, the more work we, we do with, we've been doing more and more work with organizations and writers from all over Europe, mm. for instance, mm -hmm. and, and it's, I mean, you can't even start those conversations without the economics and the politics of it Absolutely. coming to the fore. <laughs> it's like, it just makes me think all the time of, like, anytime we have these big meetings with all these people from literary organizations across Europe, I'm like, this is like a mini EU situation yeah. here, you know, because yeah. it's, uh, each country has, in terms of, it, it comes out right away, the size, the conflicts within the country and their relationships to other countries and all that is represented yeah. in, the, in the language. That's something that's come through the anthology, you know, mm -hmm. and is referenced with the word currently, is that, you know, the politics of the source text and the piece, like, are very important to the way the translation is formed. And, and the translator is someone who has to be always aware of, you know, that context. So there's a lot of political, you know, discussion running throughout the book. I'm very excited for it. Good. Uh, wonderful. Well, okay, so keep your eye out for Currently in Emotion, uh, coming out with Test Centre in 2016, and for Sophie's first full-length poetry collection oh coming out next year. Thank you so much. It's just brilliant to get to speak with you, and it will be lovely to have a poem to finish. Sure. This is one that has an image with it as well, which it we should describe for people. The image is like, well, I guess the most important thing about the image is a scroll, which says uh, Tor rule on it. Third order regular. Third order regular. Friars. Okay. Yeah, it's like an order of uh, nuns. Okay. basically in monks um, and yeah I guess when you hear the poem like the references mm -hmm. to that all become clear yeah. Paul Clare on Sundays I wander the villa with the dog and the other dogs they keep to themselves incurious as horses one of these days I smell something and in the smell I see a dead body a plateau of cloud a saint at dinner that evening, I read one section of my summary, the praise, aloud. It will be taken by a free periodical, one fat obscurity. A week later, Minares calls me down to the forecourt. Halfway into the interrogation, I am made an orphan, a moment I've been halfway in search of. The weather makes me doubt myself. A vulgar cloud appears above Minares, projecting over the begonia. Minares goes on untroubled, but soon the obscure power of the cloud makes the begonia vanish for good. 
I willingly take my things and leave the villa with the logic that I'll be able to express my opinion, until now only tangible in the ways I styled my hair, the metaphors never took. I can't reverse the future. Vile minarets held the prophecies of our futures, discreet informations concerning everyone. In one vision she told me I'd wished her many happy returns. Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.